It's a funny place to be, stuck in a seemingly mundane world with an inner knowing that the universe is so much more than our mortal minds can comprehend. Yet we all have the capacity to know peace and our oneness with the wholeness of life. And through these interviews, discussions, and reflections, it is my intention to share this possibility. I'm Ryan Kurzak, and this is the Kriya Yoga Podcast. I'm ready. Right. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. Here we go. <clears throat> Take one. Yes. <laughs> well, welcome back, everyone, to the Kriya Yoga Podcast. I'm here with David McGraw, um, a good friend of mine, Kriya Yoga teacher, Kriya Yoga coach. Um, I've known him since 2008, and we did a podcast uh, probably, um, it might be nearly a year ago now, uh, depending on when this gets posted. But David, uh, he's been reinvigorating his, his teaching practice, and also um, he recently has been doing a four-week class on uh, the depth of meditation, going deeper in meditation for our Patreon community, a journal of a Kriya Yoga teacher um, at Patreon. So welcome back, David. It's great to have you. Yeah, it's great to be back again. Yeah. So, you know, we tried to figure out what we were going to talk about today, because last time... Last time we chatted, you mentioned that there were all these things you wanted to talk about, but now you're just they've all evaded me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how that can happen. Things can seem so important in one moment, and then just right now they're not coming to mind at all. Yeah. Well, I have an idea of, of what might be fun or interesting for our listeners to talk about today, um, and it's kind of a broad topic, but it does obviously focus on kriya yoga, and that is, um, I've been contemplating the phrase, or I guess the group of words, the art and science of Kriya Yoga, or the idea that Kriya Yoga is both an art and a science. And this was um, prompted because one of the uh, attendees from uh, the Kriya Yoga Apprenticeship Program, um, when we had a retreat together at Center for Spiritual Awareness, she was from Sweden. And uh, she asked me very directly, she said, well, why is it called a science? And uh, I thought about that and I have my ideas, but I'm curious, you know, based on your experience, if someone asked you, um, why would we call Kriya Yoga a science? What would your response be? Why would we call it a science as opposed to an art or just why would we call it a science? Well, we'll, get, we'll, we'll get to the art part next, okay. but let's focus on the science at the moment. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I've heard other people commenting that Kriya Yoga is a science just because it's a strategic approach which has been practiced and the results have been um, proven and that it has been done multiple times. So in that sense, it's it's something which is uh, uh, can be applied and can be repeated um, by anybody who applies it in an effective manner. So in that case, it's kind of scientific. I always think of something which is scientific as being linear. You know, there's a kind of a step-by-step pattern that goes to it um and that it's it's by following that pattern you're able to get to the place that it's saying that you can go to um so that's the way i see science um Mm -hmm. i won't get into art yet because i just don't want to move too fast (laughs) (laughs) well we do have some time um so then i guess the next question would be there are many people practicing kriya yoga and many people um either seem to get different results or, um, you know, some people will be doing it for five years and they'll go so deeply into it that they very 
easily can say, yes, this is a repeatable science. And mm. there are other people that spend a long time, you know, learning the meditation, working at it, and, and they might wonder to themselves, well, I'm not sure how repeatable this is because I've been at it for 20 or 30 years and I'm not sure what I've been doing. So when you think about that kind of difference in individuals, um, why do you think that there might be uh, that kind of different appreciation or, or experience of Kriya Yoga if it is a science? I think it just comes down to mind. Um, the nature of mind is just so... Um, there's so many layers to it. And even if you're to look at the other sciences like psychology um, and even philosophy and the way people interpret and understand things, the same could be true of yoga in, in terms of it being a philosophy, a psychology and a practice. So um, people will apply the same practices, but the way that they apply those practices, well, first of all, they might be interpreted differently and then they might be applying them with a slightly different approach or a slightly different angle. Um, and then there's, just the way you're introduced to the practices through different teachers, different traditions, and with different slants and approaches that could just all have an impact on the scientific approach in itself. Um, trying to make it a bit clearer, when you look at psychology and you've got different schools of psychology, um, and then they're considered science, it's considered a science, and the different schools of different approaches to achieving the ultimate goal, which is to help the person to experience uh, mental health and or mental well-being um with yoga it's it's in terms of that it is a science but again the different schools different traditions might take a different approach to it and in the individual and themselves just on the nature of their own mind when they come to it um could end up finding it being different experience to maybe somebody else that has relayed their experience or whatever mm -hmm. yeah. Well, it was kind of a trick question because I, uh, uh, <laughs> right. you set me off. <laughs> I, I did. I did set you up because I remember um, visiting with with Mr. Davis, and um, you know, after going to, to a lot of retreats, and kind of wondering this question: Well, why is it that you know some people seem to kind of get it really quickly, and other people it seems to take a while? And uh, yeah. he, he, his answer was, "If I had the answer to that question." <laughs> <laughs> All right. So here I am claiming to have the answer. <laughs> oh, good. No, no, no you, I, you set me up. It's all right. It's all right. It's all right. No, I, I think I, I think you 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 hit um, the very important point there that you know basically temperaments are 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 different. Um, someone yeah. recently sent me a book uh, that was uh, the the final talks um, of one of uh, Ramana Maharshi's students, and um, he would he would talk often about that there was a different kind of uh, ripeness or maturity uh, of, of a, a spiritual seeker or um, someone who, who's, who's practicing self-inquiry. And that, um, you know, when someone is a little bit more, more mature or a little more, he used the word advanced, I think, mm -hmm. that it's easier for them to understand uh, what's going on quicker, or it seems like that, yeah. uh, versus when people are coming to it and they have a lot of things to get through, uh, you know, false ideas, that that's often what can take uh, a bit longer. So, I mean, I do, I do feel that your answer was uh, appropriate because it's the same with psychology. Why is it that some people can, you know, go to a counselor two, three, four times and feel like they've got it? And then other people, they might spend a few years and that's just because they might have a little more work to do. Yeah. 
Um, so when you're, what advice would you give to people then, you know, when you are talking to them and um, maybe they become a little discouraged or, you know, want things to happen quicker than they are, uh, what kind of advice would you, would you give to someone to, to help them stay focused on, on, on their, their inner work? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. It's you're, not a trick question. Yeah, <laughs> I'm wary of them now. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but you're asking in terms of what advice would I give them in them seeing yoga as a science, as a strategic approach that that they're maybe getting a little bit, um, maybe a little bit fatigued, maybe a bit frustrated, maybe starting to doubt themselves in their own practice. Right. Yeah, like. On a little reflection on this, like I've, I've of late been just looking at yoga as a term and the concept of yoga. And I remember Roy used to talk a lot about our um, using discriminative intelligence and our ability to discern different, you know, in terms of our uh, life choices, our lifestyles, and also within our formal practice. And um, th that, that idea of being able to discern is what, Roy was, uh, he was implying that by through our powers of discernment, we're able to find out the truth from the untruths. Um, and this is something we do in our formal practice, but then in our daily life, we can also do that as well, making decisions which are guiding us towards uh, a life which is um, supportive of our own well-being and the well-being of all of manifestation. Um and so, when so if if someone's having doubts, you know, when we first come across yoga, we're usually quite enthralled by everything that it is and everything that it embodies, and then you know sometimes by the personalities who are representing it and on uh, and the different traditions and different things. There's a lot of um, we can be very inspired at initially, um, and then we we sit down to do it and we endeavor to uh, apply ourselves, but it can just be a little bit more of a task than we had expected. And as that goes on for weeks, months and years, mm -hmm. um, those years, that's when I like to just see yoga in practically as the capacity to um, discriminate and discern. And I've just, I was just reading up in, in the yoga sutras about how that capacity to discern, I think it's, yeah, it's in the first book, it's described as the continuous reapplication of practice. And it's also the ability for non-attachment. And I like to see those two as being two sides of one tool, which is discrimination. Mm -hmm. So if somebody says that they've, you know, the, the initial um, motivation and their initial uh, uh, faith and conviction and determination to succeed in the process is waning a little bit and they're starting to doubt themselves a little bit. Well, you can just turn around and say, well, you know, have faith and pray for faith and this kind of thing. But I think it's just like anything else that we're applying ourselves to the repeated application and the ability just to let go of the failures, the ability to kind of just accept them for what they are and to move on. And, so if somebody was going to, if I put it simply, because you don't want to keep the person there for hours, if they say that they are in doubts, um, <laughs> they might not have a whole hour for a podcast. Um, so <laughs> it would just be a case of saying, well, you know, you just, it's, it's like everything else. You kind of just have to pick yourself up and reapply yourself and reapply yourself and reapply yourself. And the conviction that you had there at the beginning, it will ebb and flow. But um, I, I don't want to get into it too prematurely, but that's where the art side of it is. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um because it, it, it's it's not linear. It's not a in that sense. It's not scientific. It's not a linear process because the reapplication of yourself it takes um, 
that it's going to question your the doubting mind and it's going to put you uh, uh, put you at points when you might just feel like giving up um so I've, I've trailed on a little bit there what would i say to somebody i'd say just reapply yourself continuously and that's just the way life is anyway <laughs> yeah that's good <laughs> yeah <laughs> I like that. Um, I don't want to get into the arts part just yet. No, yeah, I'm very tempted. But, but, but I, I, <laughs> me too. And, and one one thought that came to mind about that, which I'll throw out, and then we can come back to it, yeah. is um, you know, the idea of, of art and science. Um, I, I've I've considered that, and you know, even someone who goes to study surgery or medicine, there's a big difference between what they learn in the classroom, which is probably the science of it, the linear, this is what you do mm-hmm. versus now you're in it and there's the person on the operating table and now you have to adjust, you know, yeah. you, you have to use the information you have and adjust to what's actually going on right now. And the same thing that, that you mentioned earlier about uh, people and um, sort of different situations in their life. Yeah. Uh, well, they learn the science of it, which is the general idea and structure, but then the art is probably going to be well, how does that apply specifically to your life in particular? Yeah. Um, one thing before we get into that, one thing uh, th- that I've been kind of focusing on a good deal lately is uh, the first uh, four, probably four or five sutras in uh, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras and how it essentially lays out that you know, yoga is abiding as the self, Yoga is abiding, um, uh, abiding the best words I think we can use, which are still not accurate, uh, abiding as the witnessing presence. And then how it goes on, uh, I think Sutra 4 or 5 in chapter 1, it says, otherwise, otherwise, meaning if you're not abiding as the self, then you are, you are defining yourself through things. Through, otherwise, you are conforming to definitions is what it says. Mm. Um, but then it, it, not very far past that, it starts to say that practice, practice of yoga, it tells you what practice of yoga is. Practice of yoga is abiding as the self and not practicing non-attachment. Yeah. <laughs> right? And... Uh, what I'm leading to here is one thing I've noticed is um, if you ever step back and watch the mind, you mentioned the idea of the mind. If you ever step back and watch the mind one day, you're going to be waking up and ready to go. Yes. I can't wait to meditate. I can't wait to go do my work. I can't wait to exercise. I can't wait to enjoy my family. The next day you don't feel like doing a lot of that. And then maybe three days, it's great. And then two days, it's not. And I, I think if people watch their minds, they might start taking it less seriously. Yeah. And if you start taking your mind a little less seriously, it makes it easier to abide as the self and to practice non-attachment. Yeah. you have any thoughts on that? That makes perfect sense. Um, just the, the the ebb and flow, the, you know, the, the being in the mood, the being... Um, as you say, the desire to do something, the desire to apply yourself to the practice, and then other days when you're not in, in the mood, not in that, uh, not in that uh, frame or in that space, to, and then 
because it fluctuates, it's it's just evidence of it just being unreliable uh, and not right. being not being on your side, so to speak, not being there to kind of support you. Um, and that is, I suppose, like you were talking there about the uh, practice and the non-attachment. So I just like to see that as discrimination. You know, there are two sides of that capacity to discriminate. Because on that day when you do wake up and you might be in the mood to sit and meditate, but you're able to discriminate, well, that's great. It's favorable. It's going with me. But then on the day when you wake up and you're not really, um, in, you know, you're inspired to do your formal practice, but you can discriminate that again that it's okay well it's not supporting me today but i got to do it anyway so yeah just breaking down that capacity to discriminate uh what is always going to be in favor of you adhering to your practice and in favor of you making choices which are going to support your practice both informally and informally but basically discriminating what's going the discriminating in favor of the choices which are going to help you to abide in that witnessing presence in that um clear state of pure conscious uh, being that you are and then um, and then just breaking that down into the practice and the uh, non-attachment see so you, you talked about just letting go of the mind letting go of it as being something which is uh, the knowing you know because it's not the knowing it's 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 made up of different faculties and some of them aren't always really um, supportive of what we want to do mm-hmm. I think that meditation or having a disciplined practice can help us see that because, for example, mm. at least what I've noticed is um, the, the more I said I was going to do something and I just told myself I'm going to do it whether I feel like it or not, mm. the easier it was for me to recognize it really doesn't matter how I feel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, I think I think the when you're talking about feelings, because they're they just like thoughts, they just rise and fall and rise and fall. And even you know, we might sit down with the with the feeling of yes, I'm gonna do my meditation practice, but even five minutes in, we might feel a totally different feeling. It there's nothing really we can't depend on it in any real way. Um right. and it, yeah, being able to let go of that sense of needing to have the feeling to be able to do it, um, that's definitely going to stand to us. Yeah. And we, we, we might be going maybe a little off the deep end here. I don't know. But um, like when, when we're having this conversation, because uh, in my own experience, in my own meditation, I've had the experience of being able to see, like you just described, the fact that the feelings and the thoughts, they rise and they fall. Hmm. And, they, and they don't necessarily really matter a whole lot. Uh but I guess what I'm curious is, and this is an issue that I've had talking to, to people or trying to, to get that point across, how would you speak to or work with someone who they haven't had that experience? And so to try to tell them that the thoughts aren't important or that their feelings aren't important. And please, please keep in mind, I'm not saying that ignore your feelings. I don't mean yeah. feelings are stupid. I just mean when it comes to getting comes time to getting things done there there you can just it's just like having a little kid that's yelling all the time you know sometimes that kid's going to yell and sometimes you listen to it because it's important but other times it's just yelling and you just say mm-hmm. look be quiet <laughs> so so how do you how do you communicate to people this idea that your thoughts and your feelings while they have validity in certain situations um when it comes to meditation or your spiritual practice that they're really just going to rise and they're going to fall and, and they're not that big a deal. People who are attached to them. Does this make sense when I'm trying to get Yeah, because I, I, I really think that we're all, well, 
but I'm going to say we're all attached to them because that's basically the whole issue of our human condition is we're all attached to our thinking processes. We're all attached. We all identify with them. It's just that right now I'm identifying them. I, I would hope to I like to believe at a more subtle level. Um, but somebody might, and I, I definitely for myself before I got into it, I identified with thoughts and feelings at a, um, let's say, a more gross level um, at the beginning of my practice. So if somebody was to come and say, well, what am I supposed to do? Why am I supposed to, uh, I'm not going to say stop my thoughts, but why am I supposed to regulate my thoughts in, in this way? What's the problem with that? Why can't I just experience them? Isn't this a part of my whole way of being as a human? And while it is a part of the whole way of being as a human, it's the, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say to someone, well, just do it. You know, I think, I think a really good way to uh, kind of become a little bit more familiar with the nature of thoughts without having to bite off a big chunk, uh, you know, have to believe that, oh yeah, I'm supposed to just let go of all my thoughts is just to, um, just to th sit with the, the thinking processes, like literally what I mean is uh, you're not even necessarily trying to use mantra or you're trying to use your breathing, but just, just uh, if you just, that individual, if they just sat for five minutes and you say, okay, you're sitting for five minutes and every time a thought arises, just say thinking or just say, I'm thinking or whatever you want to do, but just, t just see every single one of those thoughts and just look at it objectively. I'm not telling you to stop thinking. I'm not telling you to, that, you know, you're trying to regulate the thinking, just do it. Um, and, it and I think just, in that you create a little bit of a distance, enough distance, just for somebody to be able to realize that they don't really have any control over what's going on. Um, and I suppose that with that experience, maybe the individual might be more inclined to say, well, you know, I'd like to have a little bit more of a say on what's going on in there rather than it just to kind of churning out whatever it wants, whenever it wants. Mm -hmm. And then maybe with that, then they'd be more inclined to want to try other practices and examine how they would work in terms of um, in terms of refining the thinking processes. Yeah. Did that answer your question? <laughs> I think so. I think yeah. so. Um, one, one final bit on this idea of the, the science uh, of, of Kriya before we get into the art part. Um, and I think the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali is probably one of the prime texts that that hold this this idea because in my mind it's uh it's like a formula of uh number one chapter one kind of goes over what's it all about you know what, mm -hmm. what's what, what's happening here uh, what's the, the the main point or gist of it all mm -hmm. and then number two uh the practices since it is in chapter two is entitled kriya yoga and three I don't, I don't typically pay a lot of attention to chapter number three just because I don't know the whole idea of the the cities and the soul powers. It seem a bit distracting, but then chapter four. Uh, well, once you've almost got it, how do you have to refine it? That, that's how I see chapter four. Is it's mm. you've you've been doing the practice, you understand what's going on, but now how do you refine it to take it all the way to kaivalya or the aloneness of seeing? Um, so, do you or can you think of a way to describe? Uh, the, the fundamental mechanics of Kriya Yoga that makes it a science. Like what, what is the, the fundamental principles or, th or underlying things that a person are, are doing or aiming to accomplish uh, that actually is consistent with everyone, even though it might be applied a little bit differently depending on who you are? 
Wow, that's a big, uh, <laughs> that's a big ask. So basically, what you're asking me is, how is yoga science across the board for everybody, uh, regardless of where, what, regardless of where they're coming from and what they're coming with? Well, let me just give you an example. So, see if this yeah, yeah. So, so, so for example, when we talk about the idea of meditation, uh-huh. well, when someone uses the word meditation, all kinds of things pop up. Yeah. But the mechanics of meditation, whether you're being devotional to a statue of Shiva or a Linga, or whether you're just trying to hold your awareness clear in, in, in pure consciousness, the mechanic that underlies both of those things is the capacity to focus. Mm-hmm. So I guess uh, what I'm curious is how you might see what exactly is the underlying mechanic of Kriya Yoga. Um, that these practices help us to achieve or to, uh, I guess, uh, activate. Does that example help at all? <laughs> In some ways. So what I'm, what I'm taking from it is how does Kriya Yoga help to facilitate, like as a mechanic, pure concentration is, is, is to the point where um, the, the individual, the practitioner will be able to experience uh, what's promised by yoga is that what uh, i'm sorry i'm just i'm not sure if it's- yeah 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 that, that's the general idea like what is you know when, when you're when you're when you're talking to or working with different people you know some of them are going to have to approach it a certain way but there's still a fundamental principle that they're they're working through through their own temperament that would be the same as say person b even though their temperament might, might have to approach it a little bit differently like mm-hmm. the idea again i keep going back to the idea of devotion you know some people think that devotion is being caught up in uh, sort of this idea of song and worship for an embodied aspect of, of God or pure consciousness. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Ramana Maharshi says that self-inquiry is, is devotion because mm-hmm. in order to practice self-inquiry, well, you have to be devoted to that, which you want to know. Mm-hmm. So in a way it's similar, but the approaches of those two individuals, the bhakti versus the jnani, is, yeah. is, a, little, is a little bit different. So that that underlying that underlying principles, I guess, what I'm 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 digging at here. Well, I suppose the underlying principle of yoga as a system is that it it's as we said, it's scientific that it's got the within the raja system, the raja system of yoga. You've got the eight limbs, and so it's a systematic approach which we can break down. And I think you could break it down in three levels. You can break it down as a um, in terms of our physical well-being. You can break it down in terms of our psychological well-being, and then emotional well-being, and our um, and then our spiritual well-being, and our um, illum- illuminating our consciousness. Um, and I think that. When people come, I suppose this is why so many people are involved in yoga on a physical level is just because that's maybe where they are. Maybe they don't really know what yoga has to offer, but maybe also that they just don't really want to get any deeper than having mind-body awareness. Um, so if somebody was to come and say, well, what are the benefits of Kriya Yoga, like the mechanics of Kriya Yoga as a system? Well, I would say that it encompasses all three of those looking at, well, all four physical um mental, emotional, and spiritual, with the end aim being that by purifying our consciousness to, by purifying our consciousness and uh, experiencing our essential nature, we'll naturally be able to um, 
purify all the other uh, aspects, the emotional, mental, and physical. But that it's, uh, but by working from the other side, then working through the physical and mental and emotional, it's, um, it creates a kind of a feedback loop. We're able to purify from all aspects. And in this way, it's an integrated system. It's an integrated uh, approach which engages us. Um, at all levels of our being, physical, mental, emotional, as you say, through the chanting, it could be, or through the self-inquiry for the intellectual approach. It engages all these different aspects. And in that way, um, it's it's not a boring path. <laughs> and it's it's also, um, it, it, so it, it satisfies all aspects of, uh, of our temperament. And some people might prefer to um, adhere to some practices more than others, but uh, it's an integrated system and it's holistic and uh, ultimately um, it can be measured as we uh, as we continue with it. I, I feel that because it's adhering to the eight limbs of yoga, um, the Raja Yoga system, we're able to look at each of the limbs and 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 see how we're um, how effective we're being in, in adhering to each one, and then in that way we can we can measure our own effectiveness in the practice as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so for me, the mechanics of Kriya Yoga, uh, um, they, they you know it serves everybody's needs and temperaments. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just depending then on the person where they end up um, fooling themselves or tricking themselves into where they want to get focused. But all of it's important. Yeah. Right. Well, moving on to the idea of the the art of of, of Kriya Yoga, and this might be just a little bit of a segue. Um, a lot of people get hung up on the uh, specific meditation techniques. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I get a lot of questions about um, people will send me this long list of these uh, different kinds of techniques and say, well, is this Kriya Yoga? Can I practice Kriya Yoga without doing this technique or that technique? And, um, you know, I, I never, and probably like you too, I never learned it that way as an accumulation of techniques. Uh, Mr. Davis, when he taught it, he taught it as sort of a, an approach to lifestyle and approach to living. Um, also, while he did teach uh, specific techniques, which he learned from Paramahansa Yogananda, those weren't, uh, those weren't considered to be the end of everything. Th- those were mm-hmm. just tools. You know, as Yogananda would say, that they're tools that you use uh, f- for your purposes. So um, moving from this idea of, of science to an art, uh, we've got we've got these techniques. We've got these principles. Um, what would you say to people who uh, feel and think that well, if I just get this technique right, if I just get this one special formula, then it's all going to work? How do you how do you speak to that when people bring yeah, that no, up to you? I can relate to that because although yeah, I, I had um, years of uh, meditating before I met Roy, and I had okay. years of applying some of the. Um, techniques that he had written about in books before I met him. So I did jump on that bandwagon a little bit of um, whether with this technique and that technique. But I don't think now looking back, I could really say I thought I did think of it as being scientific back then. But I don't think of it as being scientific now. I think of it as being fanatical now. I think of it as being uh, kind of if I drive this hammer hard enough through this wall, then it's going to make a hole. But it's not necessarily the case, you know, because the wall could be made of, could have, you know, cast iron in the center of it or whatever. Um, Well, what I'm trying to say is that it's not a two plus two equals four kind of um, approach. So that's what I meant earlier, that for me, scientific is linear. 
it, using techniques is not a linear um, thing because yes, they, they do help to kind of move us to deeper, deeper states of clarified awareness, deeper states of concentration. They facilitate that process. Um, but they're not going to, if we, if we say, well, I'm going to do this exercise and then this exercise and then this exercise, then I'm going to experience Samadhi or then I'm going to experience a, a state of enlightenment and it's all going to be perfect for me then. And I'll be a perfect human being. <laughs> it doesn't really, um, that, that doesn't match up, you know, and it's even, even just being very, um, very fanatical about the techniques at all is kind of in my mind, um, sometimes avoiding the actual crux of the matter, which is to, to be able to just experience stillness um, and to investigate stillness. But if we're always involved in techniques, then it just, it, it, it prevents us from having to do that. So if we end up sitting down for an hour meditation and we spend 50 of those minutes, uh, 55 of those minutes, it just doing pranayama and different exercises and different techniques, well, we haven't really had the opportunity just to sit with ourselves. Uh, you sit in, and even though our concentration, you know, um, I was looking into the concept of samadhi for the workshops that I was offering um, on, under your invitation, and uh, yeah, it's 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 interesting to just see that we can get very caught up with this idea of experiencing samadhi um, and how it is the it's a concept which is is kind of a foreign to us to a certain degree. You know, it's it's spoken about a lot, and of course, there's descriptions of it in texts. But I think we can manipulate it in our mind to be something extraordinary which we're going to experience. And so, if we do all these different techniques and all these things, and if we're a really really good boy, <laughs> and we do all our meditation practices just how we're supposed to do them, then we're going to get the icing on the cake, and the you know we're going to get this magical state of samadhi. But I think it's more, um, it can be more compared to our states of concentration. So when we're sitting down to meditate and we're working through the technique and the technique will naturally, if we're, if we're using it effectively, will calm our mind and bring us to a more purified state of concentration. Then that in itself, that, concent that is a step in itself and being absorbed in that state uh, is a step in itself. And then maybe we can just abide there for a while and see how it goes. It could just naturally go deeper. So I, in that sense, I don't see it as being, I see this as the art side of it. It's the allowing your own intuitive knowing, your own intuitive knowing of, um, of your true essence. You know, we know this, we, we are this. So it's kind of just allowing that to guide the process a bit more than our rational mind, which is putting in formulas and tech, you know, and just making it all very uh, systematic. Now that's why we, that's where I suppose the confusion arises because we're talking about Kriya Yoga as being a systematic approach to experiencing um, our true nature. But it's it's also something which we explore and we examine and we we get involved in hands on like the artist in the workshop. We're straight in there. We may have done the, all the analytical sketches. We may have looked at the object that we're going to be painting from every which way and done all different mediums and charcoal and uh, paints and graphic pens and whatever. We've done everything. But then when it comes to actually painting the picture, there's a part of us which just needs to let needs to let go. Um, we can calculate and do as much as we need to do in preparation. And I suppose that's learning the process of Kriya and learning the techniques. But then when it comes down to doing it, 
um, there's there's a there's an art in being able to let go of it as well. Mm-hmm. And I suppose that comes back to what we were talking about earlier: the repeated practice and the non-attachment. Um, and it's and that's discrimination. It's being able to know that when you're sitting to meditate and you're going through the process, well, what kind of state of mind are you in when you're sitting down? What would be the best object of focus for you to put your attention on? What would be the best technique to help you to elevate your state of concentration? Um, But also all the while being able to accept that there's an internal knowing, there's a knowing within you that, that maybe it's okay to let go of it and just sit there and be there. Um, Yeah. So that's the art, I suppose, the intuitive knowing. Yeah, it, it made me think of a, a, a lot of different things. Um, one of them, uh, I was thinking about music, and mm. you, you use the idea of an artist. And when someone's playing music, there has to be a science to it. The person has to spend years sitting down, learning where to put their fingers if they're playing an instrument or learning notes on a scale or modes. But then once they know that, and it comes time to perform or to improvise, well, they've already got it in there. And then the the, the art becomes that natural expression of it. Um, it also reminded me of, <laughs> excuse me, <clears throat> I was thinking of a, a show I was watching recently. And in this show, um, there's a, a, a mother who she just runs around saying, I'm a good mother. I, I know I'm a good mother, but she, she just runs around <laughs> saying I'm a good mother. <laughs> but she never actually, yeah, she doesn't actually do anything that's, you yeah. know, that, 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 that you would want a good mother to do, like actually yeah. being there for her child, listening to her child, knowing what her child wants and likes. And uh, it, all this that, we, that you've just discussed made me think that uh, the, the art part of it, it actually requires uh, a certain level of responsibility. And, and maybe that's why uh, many people chase uh, specific techniques and formulas, because if there's just do one plus two plus three equals that, mm. and all the responsibility goes to, oh, well, this, this formula better do it. It's, yeah. it's, it's the formula's responsibility versus the idea, like you said, um, you know, you use the techniques to access a certain state, but then you have to learn to abide in that state. Just like when you're riding a bike and you've got those training wheels, you, you use the training wheels so that you get a feel for what it's like to ride upright. But at some point in time, you got to take those training wheels off and then yeah. you have to learn, your body has to actually physically learn how to hold itself up to go in a direction. So it, everything that you said just kind of brought all this to mind. And it makes me think that the, the art part of it is more... Um, being responsive and paying attention and and being alive with it the idea the idea that keeps coming to mind is is being alive with it being uh engaged in it being um, actively living it versus just trying to jam it into a particular kind of linear format that's supposed to work for everybody yeah, like your your music comparison there just reminded me of uh, an experience which I had. Uh, I used to do a lot of uh, African drumming when I was, I went to art college, actually. So I did a lot of African drumming in art college. But I just, the the process for me is still very vivid in my mind because it is very much like what's going on in meditation. So the teacher comes in and they offer drums and they show you there's different rhythms, the earth rhythm, the water rhythm, the fire rhythm. So they're, they're all a little bit more difficult in complexity, but you learn them all. You learn all the different uh, techniques and you learn on. And then it comes to a point when people who get to choose which rhythm they want to do and whoever's feeding up to it will take the more difficult ones. And it's like that. So then everybody's sitting together and then we, you kind of 
it's woven all together. And he facilitates that. The teacher facilitates that. So they're all woven together and everybody's playing together. And what happens is your mind is consciously aware of your own rhythm and you're doing it consciously. But what's, there's other rhythms going on now. And I suppose they're comparable to all the other thoughts that can be going on in your head when you're trying to focus on one thing. And so you've got all these other rhythms going on and you're trying to focus on your own. But there comes a point when you need to let go of concentrating on your rhythm because by concentrating on your rhythm too much, um, you're going to fall victim to the other rhythms. You're going to just be distracted by them too much to be able to follow in a timely way and keep the rhythm. And so you end up going into this void, <laughs> so to speak, into this space where uh, you are just absorbed in all the rhythms and you're not aware of the rhythm that you're doing, but it, it's being upheld in the rhythms that are taking place around you. And it's a meditative state in that sense. And I suppose that's it. It's being, it's the, in order to experience absorption or samadhi, if we want to use the, the nice fancy term, but like to be in absorption, we need to be able to let go. So the more we're focused on the techniques and concentrating with effort on the techniques, then we're actually we're denying ourselves the opportunity to experience it. Uh, we're we're doing the opposite to what we're actually trying to do. Yeah, yeah that's um, <laughs> trying to get that point across. I mean, those are those are great examples, and it the, the, your example of the rhythm and 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 uh, that instruction reminds me of one night when um, uh, I used to go to. Uh, it was called Celtic Week um, down near Asheville, and they would fly in all these Irish musicians, uh, professional grade Irish musicians to teach classes. But then at night, uh, once dinner was over, people started gathering in just little pockets of this college campus, beautiful trees. I mean, it was a wonderful evening. And it would go for hours, sometimes even all night long, where musicians would just go and play with other musicians. And I can remember one night in particular, it must have been two or three in the morning, and uh, we'd been playing for hours. And um, all of a sudden, you know, there's a sort of common repertoire of tunes that everyone knows. And um, I was so into it that my fingers just started moving, playing the tune that, that I didn't know. It was, it was, it was a, a tune that they had started, the, the group had started playing, and I had never sat down and learned this tune. But because I, I wasn't thinking, I just said, oh, I know this. And my fingers just started moving and just started playing. And then when we were done, I was thinking to myself, wait a minute, I don't know this tune. And then I couldn't, I couldn't do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, 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 I couldn't, I, it's like I, I lost it. It's it just what you described makes me think of that, uh, that experience, but you had to learn the rhythms in order to yeah. be able to do that. Yeah. I had to know at least how to move my fingers, yeah. you know, and, and the idea of what key the song was in, in order to have the capacity to be absorbed in that kind of experience. So uh, I, I think the science of it is really getting the mechanics down so that your, your body, your mind, and your consciousness is strong enough to do what it needs to do when it's time to do it, if that makes yeah. sense. Well, like, it's just, I think you reiterated it there really well in terms of once you started concentrating on what you were playing, you, re you, you got identified then with that thought, so to speak, uh, that I can't do this, that I don't know this rhythm. And once you're 
consciousness was not pure anymore because the, yeah. the pure consciousness just allows for the expression to happen. But now it's, it's being identified with something. It's not pure anymore. It's entangled with something. And so there's a limitation straight away. Um, right. and, and I think that's the crux of like when you look at art and people who are involved with creative processes, they'll often talk about, I don't know what, you know, I've been, I've been practicing for years. I've been doing this for years, but then one day I was inspired. There's just this intuitive knowing there's this, if, if, if we, if we reconcile ourselves to the fact that we are pure conscious beings, then everything that we cling to is just distorting that. <laughs> and so uh, the intuitive knowing is there's moments when we kind of, we we're in touch with it. There's moments when we'll be inspired, even during the course of a day, even little, little things, we'll make decisions which will go, oh, I really did well there. Or, you know, we can give ourselves a little pat on the shoulder or different things. But it's, there's the knowing within us what is better for us and what is better for our expression and for the sake of the welfare of all of life. But it's just the identifying with things that just distorts the consciousness, makes it, um, and, and I suppose that's that's the idea then that we're just compartmentalized into our own self and it's not as harmonious with life as it could be. Um, right. And in meditation practice, I just like to see meditation practice as a little kind of, um, it's like a, a little bubble for us to practice in a very, very abstract, but very subtle way, what life actually is, you know, it's kind of like, it, they're, they're two shows, you know, they're both going on side by side, but ideally we want to be able to do everything that we're doing in meditation practice in our lives. Cause otherwise, you know, what, what's the benefit that we're really going to express from meditation within this lifetime. Um, right. And so, so, yeah, that process of being able to just disengage with the identification with the thoughts um, as they arise, it's okay. They're arising is quite natural, but identifying with it is um, that's the process. So in our formal practice, we have the opportunity to do it. But if we're always stuck on a technique, then we don't give ourselves the chance to actually practice discriminating between let that thought go, let that thought go. We're always relying on a technique to, to kind of keep it safe for us, keep the whole practice safe for us. But life isn't safe. So, we kind of, <laughs> you know, if we had our, if we had our parents or our guardian holding our hands all the time, we'd, we'd definitely kick up a fuss. So <laughs> we don't want to have a technique always telling us how to do the thing. We want to actually let go of it at some time. Well, the, the idea that, that came to me when you were discussing that is, um, uh, you know, the, the specific techniques, like, for example, pranayama techniques and so on, uh, certain breath holds and those sorts of things, um, that if you do them with intention and you sink your awareness into them, then most definitely they're going to give you a glimpse of what stillness is like. And that's why they talk about, or the yogis talk about, the breath is 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 attached to the mind, and if you if you can regulate the mm -hmm. breath, you, you're regulating the breath not to just get better at regulating the breath. You, mm -hmm. you're, you're regulating the breath to give you a momentary glimpse, ideally or longer, of oh, this is what stillness is like, or Absolutely. this is what it's like when when the when the thoughts are regulated, and mm -hmm. then you have to grow into that. It's like um, you know when you're talking to someone who might have anger issues. And you teach them a technique to manage their anger and they, they start to recognize, oh, okay, if I count to 10, I don't have to flip out and hit someone. And so, and so then when they're in life and they're getting ready to flip out, they can say, well, I had the experience before that it, I don't have to do this. 
Yeah. And then they start to get control over it. So I think that's the beauty of, of this idea of the art and science is the science part is what gives you the glimpse of what, in a sense, you know, we're aiming to grow into. And the other thought that came up while you were talking, um, Mr. Davis, uh, I'm sure you've heard him say, would always say that uh, really enlightenment or clarity of awareness is just a shift of viewpoint. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and as you talked about, focusing on something and you use the term limited yeah and that's right because when i was thinking oh i'm limited i can't play that yeah well, well then i couldn't <laughs> and and the issue that comes up for a lot of people and this is the next question I, I have for you that just came to me um was why do you think it's so hard uh because even even ramana maharshi would say this he would say just quit thinking that you are limited quit thinking that you are the body Quit thinking that you are the mind. Why can't people give themselves permission just for a little while to have that experience of, wow, what if, what if I wasn't the body? What if I wasn't the mind? What do you think the the sticking point is there, or what trips people up? Well, now you've actually triggered off a good a few thoughts in my mind. Um, the first is just the first thing to comment is I remember when Roy used to say it's just a shift of attention. And that used to get me because it was kind of like, <laughs> well, if it's just a shift of attention, why can't I do it? You know, and, 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 you know, obviously I wanted to be the good meditator, the good yogi, and I wanted to be able to shift my meditator and get there. And I remember sitting and saying, okay, well, it's just shifting my attention, just shift my attention. Um, but although the words are simple and Ramana Maharishi as well, he, he would, he'd say, you know, it's, this is your, this is your natural state. Just awaken to your natural state. Just be there. You know, you, you don't have to go through these huge processes, but um, sometimes the identification with like you are identified with that one thought when you're playing that song and it really distracted you. But if you're coming from a space in your life where there's a lot going on and there's a, maybe you've, you've been, um, you've really been through uh, experiences which have just caused life to become very gross and your mental processes are very much um, um, a, a reflection of those impressions that have been left in your mind. Um, that idea of, well, you are that state or you are um, just shift your attention to what you really are. It's, it's, it doesn't really necessarily uh, sound out to you in a way that it's going to be helpful. So that's why I think the, the process of yoga can be helpful because they just, they help people at every level um, of wh whatever they're coming with. And I'll have to be honest, like when I came to yoga, it, you know, now whatever way I'm sounding now when I'm speaking on this podcast, but I definitely over-identified with thoughts and I definitely um, just was fanatical about using techniques and um, endeavoring just to uh, just to get it right and going to get it right and get it right. And I think that's the whole thing, again, get back, getting back to that sutra about um, the balance of repeated practice and the balance of non-attachment. Because repeated practice is fine, but it's when we become like, slaves to the practice in a way this is because like we're just doing it out of a, a fear of not being able to do it out of that sense of attachment to having to uh, be somebody who's doing this practice and um, so the letting go part is equally as important because not because you want to let go of actually sitting down to meditate because the letting go will let you to uh, let go of the thought processes which are keeping you identified with all the 
thought waves and all the different movements in the mind, which uh, cause you to become identified with yoga. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that might be a little bit complex, but it just because we were talking about the practices, what will happen is somebody gets involved with the practices, gets involved with the procedures, they start creating new identifications and new, and then they, they become their new thing in their mind. And although, and it can become very hairy, very tricky because now you're trying to tell someone, well, actually don't be attached to yoga itself. Um, And so that's a bit paradoxical. So it's kind of, that's, I suppose, the art form side of things. Um, Well, it's, it's, it's the art form side of things, but what you just said makes me uh, go back to, uh, figuring out in the first place, why are you even doing it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because uh, as you mentioned, being attached to something like yoga, well, let's say that um, you have depression, anxiety, or some mental health issues, and uh, you drank a lot and smoked a lot. Okay. Well, you use drugs to pacify the mind so that mm-hmm. you felt okay. Mm-hmm. And then what do you do? Well, then you give up drugs and alcohol, which is probably a good thing overall. And, uh, and now you're just in this meditation technique and this philosophy. So now you're just using all your force to, to not be able to uh, feel your pain and your anxiety. And, and you, you chant your mantras and, and you, you do your intense practices but you're doing it with the same kind of motivation that you would, you might as well just go take a drink and have a cigarette and enjoy it. (laughs) Yeah. 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 You know, and that brings me to the idea of why are you doing it? And um, if there, if the, if it's because you don't feel good or because, you know, you have some mental emotional stuff that you'd rather not feel or, or look at, well, that seems to be more of a realm of, uh, working with someone to get to the heart of that first. Yeah. But that, and that's the difficult part is they can easily be people's devotion ardor can often, I don't I have to be honest. I, I don't know too many people that are just truly devotional and in love with God just because, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> it, you know, it seems like there it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a substitute for, for something else, I guess. Um, and anyway, I don't know why that came up, but that, that's sort of what, what I started thinking of when you were describing that. Yeah. Um, like when people get involved with yoga um, and, you know, when you're talking about their, like our psych- psychological temperament or maybe the baggage, because we've all got baggage, what kind of stuff we've got going on and how, uh, where we are in terms of how we're going to um how much we're going to be able to get involved with the process of yoga in an effective way. Um, I think that's where yoga kind of, it's really how we're, uh, how we're introduced to it because, okay, meditation's a big thing. And and then, you know, if you're getting involved with yoga and people are, you know, the teachers are talking about meditation, then there's so many different types of, you know, there's so many different meditation techniques. Mm -hmm. And then there's, um, and and then there's the ideas about um, samadhi and having this experience of absorption. There's a lot of things which can just sound very um, beyond what we're used to in our ordinary experience before we became involved with yoga. And if we're coming to yoga with baggage and this kind of uh, identifications in our mind and with the processes of our mind that are just very much uh, gross and kind of 
distorting our 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 perception of reality um, to a very very um, a profound level, then it's it's going to be difficult for us to expect. It's difficult to expect someone to not start to make a mess of it in some ways because it's it's um, it's not as as easy as the system is and as easy as the concepts are. If you're coming with a lot of stuff, then it would be quite easy for you to apply all that stuff onto it. Mm-hmm. And get something completely um, not uh, erroneous, something which is not going to serve you, but and get absorbed into that and start practicing it from that point of view. And I, I, I would admit that to a certain degree that got, that kind of happened to me a little bit, mm-hmm. because we just we just put we just project all of our stuff onto what we think yoga is, and then yoga becomes a totally different beast. Right. <laughs> and, and, and like it's it, like and now when I'm looking at it after you know you know uh, I mentioned in the last podcast after what a couple of years of. Um, taking a break from yoga and everything like the whole idea of pure conscious being that whole concept of pure conscious being I just find it's it's actually so simple it's just basically my mind is not distorted in any way like my consciousness is not distorted in any way whatsoever it's just pure mm-hmm. but I think for many years, pure consciousness and the idea of higher realities and all this, it becomes kind of fantastical and mm-hmm. it's very, uh, it's very nice and uh, very, um, it's such a bright world and a bright experience to maybe what I'm identifying with in my ordinary states of consciousness that even if I'm, even if I'm not aware of it, and for those people who are getting involved with yoga and they're not aware of it, of it, when they come to yoga and they hear these words like higher realities and, um, you know, uh, you, oneness consciousness and uh, pure, pure conscious being, you are a pure conscious being, it can take a while to navigate through all the layers of distorting that concept mm-hmm. <laughs> before, you know, before actually being able to appreciate what yoga has to offer. So... Yeah, I, I, yeah. Maybe you want to say something there. Yeah, I, I think I think this this ties really back into the idea of the art of it because the art of it is also growing with it. Yeah, because yeah. you know, as you said, you probably started that same way, and how, you know, why did I get interested in, in yoga and meditation? Well, I looked around at the world and I thought, really, this is <laughs> this is yeah. what I'm dealing with here <laughs> and, yeah. and you read autobiography of a yogi and you, oh well you can be free of all this well great that's what i want mm-hmm. and um and I, I think the art of it is just as you as you were intimating or describing is being able to grow with it being able to see as you go oh okay well you know, I thought that this is what was going to happen. And I did bring all my baggage with it. But just by doing the practices, by doing the Kriya Pranayama, by trying to follow the Yamas and Niyamas to the best of your ability, that naturally shifts, changes and alters your consciousness. And if you keep trying to live the way you used to be, while your consciousness is shifting, that's what causes all this kind of like confusion and difficulty. And Mm -hmm. that's why non-attachment is so useful because no matter where you start, whether you want to escape from pain, whether you're just innately blissful about this idea of God, no matter where you start, you're going to change. Yeah. And if you're attached to, if, if you want to be who you are, if you want to be who you were, just superhero version of it, that's not going to work. Yeah. You have to be able to say, well, this is who I was and I'm actually becoming something I don't, this person wouldn't even recognize person a wouldn't even recognize and you have yeah. to be able to do that. Yeah. And that might be the scary part too. 
I think that's it. I think, and when you talk about letting go and scary parts, isn't that like that's one of the whole um, uh, five attachments, isn't it? The, mm-hmm. the, the be the fear of identity, and I, I you know, we can, you can, it's, it's a very profound system, and there's so many, so many. It's been approached and been um, shared with us from all angles, so that there would be as least as least confusion as possible. Um, so the confusion arises just from what we we put on it, um, yeah. and 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 but what you said there that but just by applying the process, we are naturally going to purify our mind, and um, and I think the the one thing that is quite remarkable is that for me anyway, speaking from my experience, I think there was an idea of, well, I'm going to become a perfect human being by doing this, <laughs> by doing this yoga practice. You know, that, that was, you know, when you talk about motivation for getting into it, I wanted to know, I wanted to be wise. I wanted to have the smarts, you know? And so, and so we're getting in with it. Like, yeah. So if that's all, I'm, if that's my projection. That's why I'm getting involved with it. Then there is going to be a whole distorting of everything so that I can um, satisfy that need. Right. Whereas really the need is just basically to experience consciousness, which is pure, just pure, just pure consciousness. And, and, yeah. and at some point in time, uh, this, what you talked about, and I was um, actually talking to uh, another CSA minister, Phil, who, who's been on this podcast. Yeah. Um, he, he had written to me and we were, we were talking and he said, well, I'd like to have a discussion about um, the persistence of individuality, mm-hmm. the persistence of individuality. And I thought about that. And what came to mind is I wanted to ask him, are you sure it persists? <laughs> 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 because I don't know why, why this is coming to me, but you know, we think, we, we think that, for example, like you, you were talking about wanting to be wise or, or, or a perfect being. Well, that requires that there's like a... And I, yeah, like there's a David or that there is a, a personality. Um, and even when we're in deep meditation, it seems like there is still, even when you get into the, what you might consider to be the, the clearest samadhi as far as you can talk about or remember, it seems like there's still a point of, pers- a point of perspective, which can yeah. be related to the I. Yeah. But what if that is part of the illusion that we're that we're that we, we think it's a, we think it's still individuality, but that's just that's the only way that we can relate to it from a, a mind that's limited. <laughs> well, uh, well, isn't that what uh, Ramana Maharishi talks about? Like that's the that's the seed, that's the seed thought, that's where uh-huh. it's all born from, and uh-huh. contemplating that uh, I essence and getting to the source of that, and like. Like I think it's in the in the Yoga Sutras they break down the mind into the four faculties of mind, don't they? They mm-hmm. break it down into the sense mind and then the the field of consciousness and then our our ego sense, uh, the Amhankara. Um, but and I, I think Ramaharishi he really puts an onus on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know about this because you've studied it extensively. But just to say um, that it's for him there was no real. You don't need to go through the process of all of breathing and all these different things. It wasn't something he thought about. Mm-hmm. Um, but in saying that, I've read um, anecdotes where it's he's he would talk to somebody in private and say, "But well, maybe you need to do this or this to get you to the point where you can." 
contemplate the source of that I thought, that reoccurring thought, that single one thought that keeps you identified with the rest of everything else. Um, um, and I think that's the way I like to look at yoga as a systematic approach to help us to get go through the levels of concentration as they're defined in the Yoga Sutras, the different states of concentration, they, which they call samadhi. You, 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 you can get to the more subtle states of samadhi, to more subtle states, to arrive at the point when the object of focus is just I, like that, what is the seed? And then focusing in there and really honing in on it to the point that um, it dissolves or whatever happens. Right. <laughs> the absorption occurs where it's transcended. But but you, you have to you have to hold to it. And that, I think that's the, the important yeah. point. And I recently, I'm not sure if I read it or if I heard someone say it, um, but it was that um, amateurs do something until they're good at it. Yeah. And professionals do something until they can't be bad at it. Okay. <laughs> and, and so, for example, as a meditator, you know, we can, we can go to a point where we reach that I and maybe the dissolution of that I. Mm. And there was, but then do we make it permanent? Do we keep going back to it until that is all we know? You know, the amateur yeah. has the experience. Okay, great. I've got it. Yeah. Uh, but the, the quote professional would say, all right, let's get it so that it's never not there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think that is, um, uh, that is that is in the Yoga Sutras where it talks about practice is abidance of yeah, as the self and non-attachment because you have to be able to let go of all the other stuff to keep abiding as that self and it's yeah. the kriya pranayama it's the yamas and niyamas it's the it's the uh, ability to practice pratyahara to internalize your awareness the ability to practice absorption which gives you the strength of of uh, the strength and the capacity to to do it to stay there to abide in that state and then uh, again uh, all these conversations i've had recently are coming to mind i was um, giving a test to one of um, the astrological apprenticeship students uh, that i teach and he was in india and he must have a very wise grandfather because he, he said something like his grandfather told him once um, you misunderstand the world uh, you misunderstand the world and then you think it's tricking you. <laughs> so, you, you know, you look around and, and you misunderstand everything, but because you misunderstand it, you think it's actually playing games yeah. on you or tricking you, but it's only because you don't, you don't understand it. Mm -hmm. and, and, and part of the whole process of, of, of yoga, it seems to me, is um, giving the, the space to see what's really going on. And again, the other, the other idea of like uh, when they use the example of a, a, a snake, you, you see a piece of rope and, and you think that piece of rope is a snake, mm -hmm. but no matter that's, you're going to think it's a snake until you actually see it's a rope. And then no matter what you do after that, you can't make it into a snake again. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you know, in saying that though, I do feel that the process as you're taking the steps towards that piece of rope, uh, like with our practice, as we're taking as, because that state of concentration or the state of absorption, the first time, you know, we might experience it to different depths, and but we don't know the deepest depth until we've experienced it. But the initial depths will be e equally significant to us. Uh, and just like as you're walking towards the rope, with each step, you get a little closer of a glimpse and, you know, the, the fear and the doubt starts to dissolve step by step until you're finally there and then it's completely eradicated. But I think there's, there is a process um, which 
sometimes it can go, be underestimated or less spoken about um, in terms of yoga experience. But I think all of that uh, cumulative experience as that that you can that you can have as you uh, as you progress in your yoga practice, it it um, it can give you that a greater clarity of awareness in your day to day living where reality is uh, reflected back to you a little bit more like it actually is rather than you uh, skewing it and distorting it through your conscious mm, uh, movements. Um, And I I think that sometimes that isn't spoken about enough. Sometimes we're always on about the end goal, which is absolutely important. And obviously that's our objective. But uh, maybe uh, getting back to an earlier point when you're saying, how would you keep somebody motivated to be on their path? Because even within a short time, you can have a little kind of experience of, oh, well, now I'm doing, I'm seeing things a little bit differently here. I'm seeing, I'm getting a little bit more objective. And for me, that ref- that reality, and like you're, you're quoting that guy's uh, grandfather, um, it is just seeing reality as it is. Uh, you know, when we talk about higher realities, well, the highest reality is to see, well, not that highest, but a high reality is to be able to experience what's going on just as it is rather than skewing it with all our uh, distorted uh, mental concepts and ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and going back to the very beginning, we were talking about the mind and the thoughts rising and falling. Yeah. Um, as you were talking about walking towards that that rope and we yeah. think it's a snake. Well, even, as we're walking towards it, you know, we might catch glimpses, oh, are we sure it's a snake? Yeah, yeah. And and you it, you don't know yet. So of course you don't want to just run up on it and grab it because yeah. maybe it's poisonous. But you you start to well maybe it's just rope. Yeah. But you still have to keep walking forward. Yeah. And so the same thing is true is as the mind rises and fall, as the mind comes and goes, as the thoughts and emotions rise and fall, if we can kind of step back and our meditation will help us do this too. It'll give us more perspective on on our thoughts and our feelings. Um, if we know that, well, we just need to keep moving forward, even though today we might not feel like it or tomorrow we're really enthused, but just make it consistent and steady and keep applying what we're learning, dancing with it, using the mm-hmm. science, but dancing with it. You know, the science is the beat is one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. The mm-hmm. art is how are we going to dance around that beat? Yeah. You know, and, and as long as we can keep dancing forward, moving forward, then eventually there it is. And then when, when you notice something, when you notice a rope is not a snake, it doesn't happen gradually. You just look down and, Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it, yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's not like it transforms from a rope slowly or from a snake slowly into a rope. Yeah. It's just, yeah. Bam. <laughs> I was thinking that because I was we're really pushing this analogy, but I just <laughs> but as you're taking the steps forward, it's not really that it's getting clearer. It's just that your mind is starting to work out uh, maybe a little bit of the doubts. It's starting to become more, um, it's purifying the fears maybe a little bit. But then <laughs> I'm really pushing the analogy. As you get to the snake, I suppose the last fear, the ultimate fear is that you're going to have to, you know, get close enough to actually decipher whether it's a snake or a rope. And I suppose if you compare that to the meditation and our process of going through the subtle levels of um, absorption, and then we get to that eye seed, and then we're going to have to take that step into, well, I'm going to have to just let go of the eye seed and, and get to decipher right. what's actually on what's there without me. <laughs> you know. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. But that's the, again, that's the beauty of the science part of it. the beauty of the, 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 the technique part of it is that when you 
I can remember when I first learned uh, the Kriya Pranayama techniques and, and I, I went through and I did the process. And after I did those 14 repetitions, I was just present. And, you know, it, it wasn't anything that I can recall as being like the world melted or anything, mm-hmm. but, ju- but just catching two to three minutes of no thoughts. Of course, they came back quickly, yeah. but just catching in, that, that in the very beginning, those, those, those one, two, three minutes of no thought, well, that gives the experience of, well, look, see, you can still exist and be safe even without all these identifying thoughts. It gives you the... The glimpse of it mm-hmm. and then the more you do it the more that expands and the more comfortable you get at it it's it's just like challenging yourself when you challenge yourself to do something you've never done before mm-hmm. and you find out wow i actually did that and no one died well now mm-hmm. you know hey i can i can <laughs> i can do all kinds of things you know yeah. i think there's uh there's a part of human nature that um that that uh yoga practice create yoga practice uh, helps us to to, to grow through <laughs> really yeah yeah it gives us a confidence in our existence which which kind of recognizes that it's not just all subject to the human condition you know right. there's, there's there's depths to reality um which uh, and when i talk about the depths of reality i'm not going off to other higher realities i'm just talking about there's depths to the mind and the way that we perceive things that that uh with meditation practice we get to explore that it's, right. it's riveting, like in <laughs> in terms of how deep it can bring us in our understanding of ourselves and what's going on around us. Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. Well, good. Well, I think this was a uh, I think this was a good uh, discussion to have for for our, our listeners. So, um, I feel like it, we could we could go on for another yeah, forty minutes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's the art side. The art <laughs> is very you know. Once you talk about art, you could just do. <laughs> there's so much to it. Well, well, we'll let them digest this for a little bit, and then. <laughs> We'll see what we can uh, what we can find later on. But I want to thank you for taking the time to be here with us today and to uh, share your thoughts with us. That's great. It's absolutely great to take part in this conversation. Good. Yeah, and I'll put your um, I'll put your your contact details um, uh, within the description, uh, the show notes of this okay. this podcast. So make sure you get those to me when we're done. Okay. Very good. All right. Thanks, well, it was great, great to see you, David. Thank you for being here. Absolutely. Take care. You too. This episode of the Kriya Yoga podcast was made possible by donations from Kriya Yoga apprenticeship students and supporters of our Patreon community at www.patreon.com forward slash Kriya Yoga.